I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today's guest is Jeff Shackelford. No doubt you're familiar with Jeff. He is the writer of the Quadrilateral Newsletter, which focuses on news and insights around golf's major championships. And he is also the author of the new book, Golf Architecture for Normal People, which I highly recommend, and you can find anywhere you get books. I'm bringing Jeff on today for a couple of reasons. First of all, Jeff is Fried Egg Golf's unofficial rollback correspondent, and we have senior, senior. <laughs> senior rollback correspondent, uh, and we have uh, rollback developments to talk about, for better or for worse. Yesterday was actually an important date for the USGA and RNA's proposed model local rule, which would help institute a limited flight ball for elite competitions. Yesterday was the end of the designated comment period in which various organizations and industry stakeholders were invited to offer their feedback on the MLR, and boy, did they ever. So Jeff and I will break down all of that. And then for a completely different subject, he was out at Bel Air Country Club last week for the U.S. Women's Amateur, and I want to talk to him about that golf course and that event. We'll also touch on the AIG Women's Open, which was held at Walton Heath last week. Those are two big women's tournaments and two very interesting golf courses, and few people are better at talking about courses than Jeff. All right, so right after this break, we'll be back with Jeff Shackelford. This episode of the Fried Egg Golf Podcast is brought to you by Club TFE. Club TFE is Fried Egg Golf's membership. You can find out more at thefriedegg.com slash membership. We have a couple of new things rolling out in Club TFE. You know, first of all, obviously, Fried Egg Golf went through a rebranding recently. We were once the Fried Egg. Now we are Fried Egg Golf. We also have a new logo, a new look, all that good stuff. We've sent out emails to this effect, but for Club TFE members, the content is remaining largely the same, but again, there's a bit of a new look to everything. Now, as part of this rebranding process, one of the things that we thought through was what kind of content we are offering through Club TFE. We're going to continue doing a lot of the same stuff we were doing before. We have the weekly course profiles. We have the Club TFE blog going. But one thing that we launched just on Monday of this week is Design Notebook. Design Notebook is a column, basically, that comes out on Monday and covers all sorts of golf architecture-related topics. It's going to be news. It's going to be rumors. It's going to be insights about courses that we've visited recently. It's going to be miscellaneous, but all of it revolves around golf course design. We're going to hope to bring out that column pretty much every Monday going forward. There will be various contributors to it, but I will be contributing a lot to it myself. So that's Design Notebook. If you're a Club TFE member, you can check out the first installment of it right now on the Club TFE blog. 
So again, the place to go is thefriday.com slash membership to see what we have in Club TFE. All right, back to the episode. All right, Jeff Shackelford, there's been a lot of movement lately in the rollback situation. The comment period for the model local rule ends today. When we're talking, it will be yesterday by the time this podcast is posted. Both the PGA of America and the PGA Tour have weighed in on the subject. Why don't we start with the PGA of America? What was the response here and how would you explain it? Yeah, well, the yeah, the comment period uh, has has ended and at the very end at the at the sort of the tail end they uh they went public with their comment which I think that alone you have to think about a little bit because the USGA and RNA have been uh airtight in their uh secrecy or not secrecy, that's the wrong word. That sounds sort of nefarious, but they've been they've been disciplined about not uh, intervening in the in the comment period you know i've tried i tried at bel-air uh <laughs> rather relentlessly i i i might have gotten some people to give me some tidbits here and there but not really legally i, I think they expect that from you i think they would have oh, been yeah, disappointed yeah. No, no, had you smile. not tried to press yeah. the issue i have yeah. to try uh, <laughs> i got nothing of substance let's be clear but the point is they want to be uh, they're trying to, to be open and to hear these comments. And so they don't want to intervene as it's going. I was pleased to hear, cause I did ask one of the main things I did get an answer on was if I could write a letter like the PGA of America, would they take it on? Oh, and they went, Oh no, we, we, we've already gotten all your comments. They document all the, uh, media coverage and, and columns and different things as this was going. So I was pleased that I didn't have to spend my Sunday night penning a last minute uh, letter and I'll do it instead in a newsletter for my fine uh, subscribers. But so we don't we don't have to fill out a form. In other words, no. The, we're good. the, the comment period has been open for us for a while. They, and, more than yeah. we realized, I think. So, Interesting. Okay. Uh, so yeah. So the PGA essentially, I felt funneled a lot of uh, talking points of of one company in particular, but but uh, in general, uh, some things that we had heard them say before about the topic and and some new things uh and 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 not all of them are are silly you know there are questions that i feel like before the comment period the usj and rna should have addressed uh things like handicapping say at the club championship they play the model local rule ball and you turn in those scores well how, how are those rated versus a normal round. Um, these are all things I believe they know the answer to, but they, I think it's their one failing in that sense that they didn't anticipate a few of those questions raised by the PGA of America. Uh, there was, there was some stuff with the driving range balls, which is, um, I, I think, uh, was very first world. And it felt like the memo from the PGA of America was similar to the tours and that, you know, they have a big board, 20 people, I believe, a lot of officers, a lot of past presidents with voices, some much smarter uh, than others. So they're trying to cover all of that and show that they listened. Uh, but the fact they went public with it, and then I, I, I never did hear it, but I did know uh, Seth Waugh was on the Golf Channel. So they were kind of out pushing their point, which I think was a little aggressive as well. Um, and I guess they feel they need to defend it. But the the, the bigger 
point is that they're just uh, they're really against this. And I think what's fascinating, though, is that both they and the PGA Tour are really uh, seizing on the bifurcation idea and how bad that is for the game. And my view, and I'm going to write a piece about this, is that they, uh, I think they've teed up the organizations to go, okay, fine, we won't do a model local rule. We have, uh, we have some balls already sent in. The data shows that uh, a majority of golfers wouldn't even notice a difference distance-wise, a vast majority. I mean, well, I, I don't know the number, but I'm feeling like clubhead speed-wise, uh, this is a 1% of the game issue uh, that would be impacted by the proposed new testing. And so I feel like they, in a weird way, unintentionally, I think, um, may have teed them up to go, okay, no model local rule. We're just going to implement the new testing and uh, see what happens. But if they do that, they need to make sure they make very clear to the average golfer out there that, you, you, you know, I hate to break it to you, but you're not going to lose distance if we do this. So uh, so that was kind of my main takeaway of the of the uh, the memo and sort of the, the the idea of what it may have spawned. What do you think the main pressure acting on Seth Waugh right now is? Is it the fact that the membership of his organization is predominantly against this? Is Seth Waugh or the PGA of America leadership generally a true believer in the anti-rollback cause? What is going on within that organization that would cause them to come out this way against another governing against the governing bodies, right? Yeah, it's it's hard to know because so many of the the members of the PGA of America deal with some of the issues on a day to day basis that we know are caused by distance. Uh, That's what I would think, right? Yeah, who, who is more aware of the the safety issues and right. the property boundary issues caused by a longer traveling golf ball than a yeah. PGA pro? But they're also people who are you know in the world of commerce and they have arrangements with companies and they get free stuff and it seems like they've basically come down on the side of preferring that which as you know probably from my writing just totally blows my mind since uh, the manufacturers really kind of abandoned the 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 golf pro shop at a course as their main place. I mean, we have seen a little bit of a comeback with fitting and fitting days and order your clubs this way. But at least in my lifetime, I'm a little older than you. I've seen, I've gone from starting the game at a time when the pro really mattered, his shop really mattered. And the shop wasn't just a a place to sell stuff. It was kind of a little communal place at a lot of golf courses where, you know, younger golfers hung out with the assistant pros and then you went out and played golf and you know, in the grow the game context, the the golf shop, I mean, going back to old Tom at St. Andrews, was a real central place that, of course, is both private and public. And um, and so to me, it's really kind of gross when you know that history, the way the manufacturers drop them like a, a you know, a lead balloon uh, to sell it at uh, Roger Dunn's and nothing against Roger Dunn or wherever, uh, uh, Dick Sporting Goods their their businesses and they're doing what they do and and their nice stores and all that but it's odd that the pros don't recognize that part of the uh the deal but they like free golf balls and titleist gives a lot of money i believe to the pga of america retirement fund so to answer your question regarding seth you know he's got a lot of things coming at him from different areas and it's a tricky one for him because if he starts mentioning issues he's seen at his 
clubs. Well, of course, he starts reeling off a list of like 400 memberships, and that looks kind of weird. But I, I, you know, again, I, I, I kind of sense he's on board with it, which is a little weird to me, knowing what he knows about course design and the time he's spent with with people like Gill and and uh, playing the great courses and and all that. So I think he's caught between a bunch of different things, but he's a CEO and he could probably have sold this better. And for all I know, maybe that this was their motive. Maybe they do want to kill bifurcation and have it just apply to the overall game. And, but I don't feel like the organizations in question, given the way they've been behaving lately are that clever. Nor do I think that they want that. But that would be amazing well, if that's they the, did. That's the irony. They may have put the uh, U, teed it up for the USGA and RNA to do this, and then they're going to be unhappy when they go, okay, we'll call your bluff, no bifurcation. That makes it easier for everybody. And then, <laughs> and then we'll hear them bitch and moan about yeah. that too. And there's a, there's a separate set of arguments about that, which are right. easier arguments to make. I always thought that the argument against bifurcation was a little bit hard to make because it's so abstract, right? You yeah. have to make some kind of appeal to the spirit of the unity of the game. And that's not a particularly emotional thing for a lot of people. So it's hard to use that as a as a key point in your persuasion. Whereas if you say you're going to lose 20 yards, then that's more of an emotional appeal to of golfers. Course. And so it would seem to me that the argument against universal rollback would be a lot easier to make. But certainly these various organizations have mounted a, a vigorous case, if not a particularly coherent or strong one, against bifurcation. Now, Titleist's role in this is obviously profound. Titleist is a dominant force in the green grass business. How would you describe Titleist's relationship with PGA pros and pro shops across the country? Now, I'm not asking you to engage in conspiratorial thinking. I don't think that uh, the, the Titleist is the deep state or anything like that. But obviously, they have a lot of influence in pro shops and among PGA professionals, right? Well, many of the talking points in the in the PGA of America memo were were just straight from their uh list of of topics that you know the, the various approaches they've tried over this uh delay and different things like that uh we all play the same game blah 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 I mean it was right from literally it was like they went on their website and took some of this stuff so yeah and they obviously have a strong relationship with a lot of pros there of course there are tailor-made and Callaway pros out there too um, but they are more relentless on this topic, always have been, you know, and, and have always been uh, after me and, and the places I work and, and um, uh, bitching and moaning and doing PowerPoint presentations to the Golf Channel staff to try to when when their advertising deal was in question and the, the advertising hinging on that, um, you know, listening to that, of course. Uh, they're back advertising there, so uh, anything you hear on Golf Channel, that, that there's that influence now as well, if uh, anybody still watches any of the shows. Uh, but um, they are uh, aggressive, and they just don't see anything but the status quo as, as a solution. And of course, is you know, uh, walking around Bel Air, talking to, you know, good golfers or members there or fans who came out who are purists or in terms of loving watching great golf and, and great young women play on a cool course. Um, and it was a neat kind of mix because some people did get the word. You could come out and it was free. And 
Yeah, you just don't get a sense there are a lot of people in that world that understand their position because you always have to buy and play golf balls. Uh, that's always that's going to be a constant. It's the ultimate uh, planned obsolescence product. And uh, they're the best at it, and they're the most trusted. And in any scenario you want to put out, that's going to continue unless they are stupid and refuse to make the product or, or try to sabotage it some way. And I don't see them doing that. Um, they're too smart to do that. And they have too many patents and they've already you know done all the, the research on this. We know they can make the ball. They have 14 balls now on the conforming list. Pro V1, excuse me, 14 Pro V1 variations on the conforming list. 14. So it was 12. And I last time I looked a few weeks ago, it jumped to two more. So do I have access to all 14 of those? Uh, you do not. You do not, even though we all supposedly play the we, same. We play the same equipment. Sorry, same that was a cheap stuff. shot. Well, no, it wasn't. No, because it's an important point. And, and I think what I noticed, I'm picking up more and more, is how many people don't buy that argument. Like, we know they have a tour van. They got these great fitters who dial them in. They make tweaks. They make adjustments. New products out. We're trying that. It's on the list that you and I can't buy. Uh, they get it all for free. You know, they're not having to pay for this. Um, the players. So it, it, the arguments are are not great. And um, but this is what they've always done. And and and, and it's just got to be clear by now. They're, they're never going to be happy. So you just have to ignore their uh, uh, their their position at this point, because they, they just it's, I, you know, it's, it's pure pure selfishness and uh, and the irony of course is that they have a lot of uh, fans who love the feeling like they're part of a tradition and a more traditional brand and and all that and they when you t- walk some of those people through these things who don't maybe follow it uh they're offended you know people who care about old architecture or safety or the things that matter uh and watching a more interesting game and they don't know this and you take them through it and they're 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 pretty offended and hurt and disappointed that the company is uh quietly behind the scenes working this way so it's a it's it's a bit of a risky position on their part in that way tell me if this is naive but i thought going into this that this whole situation might be a great opportunity for a company like TaylorMade or Strixon. Yep. Or even Callaway, although I believe they're number 2 at this point and maybe want to defend their current market position a little bit. I thought it was going to be a perceived opportunity for these companies to upend the current balance in the ball market, which is very very favorable towards Titleist. Yeah, I've I've long had the view and Gosh, back uh, in in my future golf book, which is now the self-published one's 20 years old, uh, I put that scenario out there. Well, who's going to be that company that makes the classic course ball? Because, and, and you know, Andy and I have talked about it uh, and many times, and, the, and Andy continues to remind everybody of the soft spikes example, which I saw firsthand after Riviera's greens were bad in the PGA. The club adopted, made it mandatory to to wear soft spikes. Other clubs started doing that. And the fact that this one, essentially one high profile course, there might've been one or two others, 
jumped on board on that and look where we are now, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's better for the game for the most part to, that we don't have spikes, even though they're, they are better, but for greens and the way idiots walk and the damage that they can do, um, the turf grass industry likes it better. And I think we, we've seen the improvement. And so where is that? I've been waiting for that one company to have the same, to go to a pro at a Pine Valley or a Marion or a, or a, um, take your pick of a place that, is doing you know, silly stuff with teas, not, you know, because they want to remain relevant and saying, you know, enough is enough. And the crump comp, we're going to play the, the normal teas, but we're going to play this ball. Well, they need the ball to be made. Um, so it is odd to me that these companies that obsess about Titleist's dominance didn't even try it. Uh, I mean, just, just to just put it out there quietly, classic course ball. It's not a, not a big deal to us, but it's just another product. I mean, they make a jillion products as it is all of them. I, I, you know, even Jack Nicholas, you know, when he went in the golf business who's been on this thing since the early seventies and he's been very consistent. He did came out with three balls, you know, a good player ball, a a, a, I guess a general and then a, a kind of a beginner. Uh, and and why, why wasn't one of those a, a, a rollback ball? And it's just the industry is addicted to selling longer and straighter. That's all they've got. Okay, so let's talk about the PGA Tour side of things. A few weeks ago, Jay Monahan came out with a memo that I'm not sure it was intended to be released publicly. I can't remember. I believe it was oh, more of a... Oh, they know every more, one of those It was an intentional leak out. kind of situation. Yeah, it was like, uh, you know, it wasn't a press release, but basically it was. And this memo in- included some assurances to the players that they uh, would fight the MLR, would be opposed to it. Now, a common interpretation out there was that because Jay Monahan is currently in such a weak position with regard to PGA Tour members, he can't push back on them with the MLR. Do you think it would have made a difference in the first place? Do you th- do you think this weakness of his right now really played into his position on this, or was this going to be the position all along? Uh, well, I definitely think it it fueled some <clears throat> of the language, but uh, he's he's always had this position when I've spoken to him one-on-one and so it's not a huge shock um but i do think that his weakened position probably uh uh helped and then obviously the the players fearful of losing contracts because there there may be language in those deals that allows them to be dropped if this happens uh is a is a is a driving force so i i yeah it's just the timing is is certainly interesting on so many levels and then as you've been noting on uh, what what the few times i well, i pop into twitter or i on my for you feed i know you you guys have been hammering uh home the point that and this is one i argued with with jay and didn't get anywhere but that that you know, it, it where's the big picture view on the way your product is played and understanding that it's it's just not as interesting this with this version of the game that you're determined to have. And um, there's also just the, the, they, the, the philosophic belief that they, they've grown the game, that they are the ones who are responsible for the increase in, in rounds played or the number of people. And there's no question that they've helped on a lot of fronts, whether you can you know go, go to little things like whatever the first tee kind of shifting to a more of a, 
uh, a golf program instead of a life skills program or uh, their their uh, work with uh, getting top golf uh, uh, more golf uh, related and strategy partnership whatever they want brand equity blah 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 all those little we know all these little things are contributing um, the normalization of nine whole rounds par three courses um, you know, no question the guys have, uh, are, are not, they're not hurting the recreational game. Let's put it that way. But we also know the pandemic was a big part of it and kind of a change in perspective and change in, in, uh, work habits and commutes and all that was a far greater, far greater impact and the safety of the sport in terms of being outdoors. So, but they are, they seem to be pretty convinced that they're, they're a 90% of the cause of the uh the spike and in, in interest in the sport and i think uh the ratings would would suggest that 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 isn't the case i think you would see a i think you'd see it oh i mean you can make the case the ratings are are not so great because people are out playing golf so you can, you can sell it either way if you really want to right you've seen a rise in rounds played on golf courses by average golfers but you have not seen a corresponding rise in interest in pga tour events Certainly those things are growing at a different pace right now. And so to uh, draw a correlation between them would be pretty shaky. But this is something that I noticed in the way that PGA Tour players discuss a lot of things that are going on right now with the tour, with the the likely coming restructuring of the tour, this this new age of professional golf. When the players talk about it, they slip pretty easily between the term PGA Tour and the term the game of golf. Yeah. And one thing that I think we need to remember is that those two things are not the same and that the game of golf is a lot bigger than the PGA Tour. But it seems like this position on rollback that the PGA Tour has comes partly out of this conviction that they are the game of golf or yep. that they are the most important thing in the game of golf, and that if they take a stand here, then it's not going to happen. But I wonder what you think about that, even oh. if the PGA of America is against it, even if the PGA Tour is against it. The USGA and the RNA are certainly for it, and they have a couple of really big championships where they can institute this model local rule. So where do you see this standoff going? Yeah, there's no question they think they're the game, and and that's sort of the irony of the PGA of America's position. That, um, and believe me, I, I I love a great golf pro, and 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 have all the admiration in the world for them. But at most facilities, the superintendent's now the most important person, and paid like it. Um, and and, and the manager at other facilities is 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 same thing uh, more than the pro. And so the idea that both organizations, uh. Think so highly of their role in the in the sport um, is probably driving some of their uh, their arrogance or or whatever you want to call it on this topic, um, and uh, uh, there might be some truth to it, but I think they're I think they're overstepping a little bit. Uh, so ultimately, the math on the majors doesn't still doesn't add up for them, uh, and the masters will adopt this if, if it's made, and the companies somebody does it, and the players will have to play it and figure it out for the 2026 masters. And uh, that's three to one. Okay, here's a theory. Maybe you can respond to this. 
the PGA Tour and the PGA of America, most of all, want the USGA and RNA just to drop this. That's that's what yes. they want delay, to happen. Delay, 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 and because then, yeah, they, they see, know everything's fine. Make it go away. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe this arrogance is so profound that they think that they could actually proceed with the old ball if the MLR gets instituted as proposed. But I don't think that they're that delusional. I think that they know they're going to have to adjust to this if the MLR goes into effect at the Masters, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship. And so my feeling is that their tactic right now is like, we've got to make a show of force and we've got to try to squash this right now because we're going to have to capitulate if this goes through. Like, do you think that's what they're thinking or would you edit yeah. that 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 interpretation in some ways? No, that's my sense that it's it's to try to get it delayed and uh, hope it goes away and, you know, keep saying that, well, everything's fine now. Why would you do it now? Or, yeah, it's again, they're just channeling company talking points. None of these guys really sit back and give it much thought. I get the players trepidation here because they've all been so successful in the current state of things sure they have made their careers in this equipment reality and they don't want that taken away and i totally get that and their their success their expertise should be celebrated well that would be understood they should be able to adjust of all well yeah we're talking about we're not talking about making them go back to persimmon that's right not taking away the size of the the head these are these are such that's what makes their the whining kind of pathetic i would get totally get it if it was a radical change um but it's such a it's a it's a change that can can be worked on on a launch monitor um it, it just is not a big ask uh for them and uh, the only change will be they're going to be hitting some longer clubs into holes maybe maybe they might but they might even move some tees back up to where they used to be who knows we need to see what the end product looks like and they'll have time to adjust. And it, it, that part is um, it it really, I've really lost a lot of respect for most of the players in that. Cause I've been searching for that one player that goes, you know, I'll I'll give whatever they, they make I'll play whatever they give me. I'm going to go out there. I'll get it done. I'm confident in my ability. There hasn't been that sort of, uh, that courageous uh, stance of somebody and it really is embarrassing that there well, that's, that's Rory, right? Tony Rory has yeah. finally changed, but he was all over the map on the topic and he probably would admit that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's make a big transition here into a more positive topic in my view, uh, which is the tournaments that took place o- over this past week, including the U S women's amateur, which you saw, in person. So you were out at Bel Air Country Club to watch the action. What was your favorite hole to watch out there in this tournament? Well, it was, yeah, it's the first time I've gotten to see good players playing it, the the restoration this way. Uh, but before, I mean, before I pick a hole, I just want to say it was the thing that was so enjoyable to watch was, was actually some long, seeing the course played and I, I don't like this phrase, but it's the best you can do it somewhat like it was meant to be designed or des- or played like it was meant to be designed. Meaning 
on some of the long par fours. You saw hybrids and long irons in, and you saw uh, the kind of uh, mix of shot making, and and you saw people in the crowds. They weren't huge, but they were the people who were there reacted. Yes, occasionally to let's say in the final, Latana Stone hits a couple big drives, and you know there was a little bit of ooh, but it was more the lines that they took, the aggressive lines, knowing the trouble. It was more seeing somebody play to a middle of the green after from with a long club in after the first player missed the green, and you know seeing a little of the nuance in the strategy of match play. It, it just was beautiful to watch. And I actually thought the USGA played some balls too short. Um, I thought they aired a little, little too much on a couple of holes that uh, played a little differently than I would have uh, thought. Uh, and they also just didn't mix it up as I would have, as much as I would have thought. I mean, the women are playing their tenth round on Sunday. <laughs> uh, you know, on the course, you'd think I, I would have. We, I, they, they, I'd like to have seen a little bit more. But um, so, and it was just the women are great and. I mean, just great, just wonderful attitudes, friendly, down to earth. And it does remind you that the power game breeds, it can breed douchebaggery for lack of a, I'm sorry if that just, <laughs> just gave you an explicit warning on the fried egg. You guys have avoided it, I think, but um, it really does breed this sort of this jag that thinks he's, you know, like a weightlifter that can, you know, lift ridiculous, you know, should be in the Olympics. And the women are um, a little more well-rounded. Um, every one of them you interview and, and the way they interact with the crowds and the people. And, and that happens at the men's U.S. Amateur, too, just because of the way it's played. You know, it's sort of this week-long thing. And there's people out in the galleries. And, you know, the families are there. And you see, you see the emotion when somebody wins a match um, of the people around them and all that stuff. But So it, there's just a different atmosphere that way. Mm-hmm. But it's also the way the game's played, and um, uh, it is it is fascinating to see that difference. And uh, and these women were not short by any means. Like I said, I thought they could have played it a little longer, frankly, and and brought a few hazards into play that they were kind of bombing over. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, gosh, I mean, favorite hole it, the. Uh, the 14th really played beautifully. This is a par five, and, and it's uh, always been a really tough hole. It plays down the canyon, and it has a green that goes way hard away from you. And the Doak took the front bunkers down. They used to be up a lot higher mm-hmm. when I played there in college. Um, and they hid the green more, and I, I can't decide whether I like that better. It's it's such a cool green, though, to see into. So, I mean, there were, I, you know, there were a lot of holes that played great. Uh, the May West hole, the 12th, which I realized when I was tagging a couple of the players hitting into the May West, I was thinking, is should I be doing that? Should I? Is this uh, is this is this problematic? I mean, first of all, they have no, they're not going to know. It's one of it's one of those hole names that, yeah, I mean, it is concealed enough, I guess, but it is one of those hole names that kind of comes out uh, comes out of the old fashioned bro, well, bro culture, you know? Yeah, hopefully they just Google May. Oh, it's it's named after a movie star. Okay, yeah, right. and then they yeah. won't they won't dig any uh, any deeper. Right. But um, yeah, they played it drivable, and who did I argue with? A few people didn't like it. I thought it was kind of cool. They played it up. They they actually created this tee for the uh, amateur. It'll probably stay for the for the the members, the women, and the, and the the wives of members who they, it's because it is mo- it's it's not a men's club, but it's 
and they do have women member full members, but it is a majority men. And mm-hmm. uh, they're going to keep that tea, I think. Um, man, they might even play it in a club thing. But it, I actually thought it was it was kind of neat um, just to mix it up again. Uh, I'm not thrilled with the way that whole came out. Uh, I don't like all the rough and, and the, the mound. The, the left breast, if you will, is too, too pointy and big. Um, and... Uh, so that was, but it still played well. Um, I really all the the, the whole the, the whole course played well. The first hole played beautifully, and it was mm-hmm. neat. It, it settled match ties. Yeah, it's a hole there that they don't really. It's too easy since of the renovation. I keep hearing it's like well, but that was the philosophy. That and was that's philosophy, what is yeah the par four and a half. Yeah, and I saw. I mean, Latana Stone hit the most beautiful shot into the hole. There's this big slope left of the green, and then there are these shrubs left of that. So you really have to take on a potential lost ball, hit it up on this high slope, and feed it down to 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 hold the green in two. Unless you play straight at the green, which you can do. There's a slot, you can kind of work it in the middle. But if you cut on, come off it a little, you go down a hill and you're toast. Um, I mean, you could play the shot but it's a brutal up and yeah, down it's a big so, ledge on the right side of the green basically yeah i would yeah. say actually that hole i think played the best and it was a great example where the distances they hit it uh really showed what a brilliant hole it is as opposed to what it's you know this this post-renovation uh view that it's it's not a good hole or it's too easy. Um, and so I think, I hope some of the members who were out there saw that and absorbed that because um, maybe with a model local rule ball or rollback ball, it'll be a little bit more uh, of a good reachable type par five instead of a drive and a nine iron, which I get that, but you know, that's not George Thomas or the architecture's fault that <laughs> they can do that. It's yeah. the equipment's fault. All right. So in your book, Golf Architecture for Normal People, you propose a system for evaluating golf courses that goes by the acronym RED. So I want to try to apply this system in some way to Bel Air. Maybe there are some insights that we could get out of that. But first, could you just briefly describe what RED stands for? Yeah, uh, you know, R is for remember, E is for 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 the everyday question, and and D is for dog. And <clears throat> yeah, the idea was that I wanted to uh, sort of demystify the real tenets of what makes a course great. Um, and and you and I can can bore people to tears all day talking about routing and all these and scale and. Um, and I think I feel like that can that can be a turnoff to some people. So I was looking for a way to, first of all, to make it easy to remember, um, uh, and and then to ask those questions, explain what they speak to in in the more wonkier ways of golf architecture, uh, and then to just simply answer yes or no. I mean, if somebody wants to assign a number to each one, they can whatever they can have, do whatever they want. But it was more for me just a yes and no question. Um, because I've just always felt like, uh, it was generally the first two questions. Can you remember every hole after you've played it? Uh, and is it a place you could play every day and enjoy it? Uh, I was asking those for a while and then the dog thing kind of came because nothing really addressed scale and naturalness and that, that sort of intangible, uh, joy of, of walking, a place or enjoying a place that maybe, yeah, just cause it's not ranked in the top 100 doesn't mean it's not 
uh, a place that makes you feel good. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, you read the book, I caved a little on the experiential part, you know, us architecture, uh, nuts have always been, you know, agonized when people factor in the experience. And I, I just, when I was working on the book, I just realized you just can't fight that. Mm-hmm. So don't fight it. And there are um, some design elements have- that enhance experience. So. Well, of course, of course. And there, there are experiential elements that take away from the, from the design, you know, and I use the analogy of a movie theater. You go to a theater and the floors are sticky and people are looking at their phone and the, one of the speakers isn't working and, and you can't fully enjoy that film if, if those things aren't, or you go and everything is just right. The audience is quiet. The seats are comfortable. The screen is, you know, everything's just dialed and the sound is just right. And it's a great film. It just makes a great film even better. Um, you know, there are all those kinds of those elements. And um, so I wanted to to try to cover all those. And the dog element gets to some of those things about um, uh, the walk. I actually learned an interesting word walking with Fred Perpall, the USGA president, because he's an architect and he's really, you know, such an impressive guy because he's really a new golfer in a sense uh, in the time he's been playing the game and uh, his knowledge is incredible already and his understanding. And and we were discussing the Bel Air clubhouse because I couldn't get anything too profound out of him on, uh, on, on topics where, where lawyers are monitoring <laughs> every, every <laughs> word they say. And, you know, the clubhouse is under construction and it's, it fell behind. It wasn't ready. And, and they've really tried to bring back their original building with, you know, like modern bells and whistles and maybe a little more indoor outdoor space than the old building had. But when you stand on the 10th green, they wanted, and, and it does, it looks just like the old rambling Spanish building with this beautiful bell tower, just from the course, it looks so cool. And that's hard to do in that neighborhood with so many, um, so many massive homes now. Um, although most of them are pretty, pretty ugly, but he used an interesting word, uh, procession. And we, he said, we use a word in architecture about the procession, uh, and it's essentially a similar element to the dog walk topic of, of kind of the flow. And, and when you get out of the car and what do you, you know, mm-hmm. what do you see, what do you experience and how, and how you move? Because the old Bel Air clubhouse, it had all these add-ons like a bit like the golf course did. And you could get lost in there. It was dark and it was confusing. I mean, I, I, when I was in Pepperdine, I, I literally a couple times I was, I got lost just trying to get to the damn first tee. Cause we had to change our shoes in the locker room. They let us do that. They didn't want us changing in the parking lot, you know, even though we were parking down in the caddy lot. And, um, and so that was an interesting word. So anyway, it got to, it, it I was, I was smiling cause he didn't know about my book. Uh, and, uh, but I was kind of grinning. I'm like, Ooh, I wish I'd known that word before I'd written that chapter. It would have been a good one to fit in. But, uh, anyway, so Bel Air, yeah, it, uh, I mean, I can't think of, a, uh, many courses that are easier to remember all the holes and, and, you know, you know, that's the primary topic there is routing. And, and I have issues when people question a routing because there's been involved in a few, you just don't know what the constraints were. So all you can really do is judge what was built. And to me, the ultimate of whatever was built is, is the memorability part. Um, and I mean, Bel Air, just, just one of the craziest things ever the way it's, you know, originally George Thomas had 
land on starting at the clubhouse and then a few canyons in front of it. And then they were going to go down where UCLA is now. And things changed hands with developers. University kind of bought the land, took it on and um, made it there. So he had to, for lack of a better buzzword, pivot and got in his plane and flew over the canyons, according to some of the old magazines. Uh, and they had to come up with a course and make it work with tunnels in these all only in the canyon portion. And of course it was a real estate development. So, um, and the way they do that and the way it works, it's impossible not to remember all the holes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, <laughs> so it's and, a big and, yes on the R category. And it's all, it's interesting that, the that routing for you factors most into the R component, the remember every hole component, because a lot of people would say that routing factors very heavily into the dog walk component. It does. It does a and, little bit. I mean, it sure. probably, it goes into both uh, for sure. But you know, but when it comes to, when it comes more and kind of how the holes fit the land and yes. sort of uh, change pace transitions uh, and yeah. And just how you feel playing them and, and are they fighting the land? Is it, is the architect fighting you? Uh, so yeah, but no, there are definitely, definitely parallels. And maybe what is most extraordinary about Bel Air is that, in spite of the difficulties of the land, the procession, as yeah. Fred might put it, oh, it's, is it's really it's, good. Like it works oh, well. They they made it work somehow. It's amazing. I mean, it, and it goes. I wrote a piece years ago, and I think I need to revisit it, especially since the magazine is uh, belly up. It was Golf Digest Index, and it's about the greatest entrance drives in golf. And literally, Bel Air. Of course, I had a, I had a cool chat with somebody. I had no idea what I'd written or knew or thought. And it was talking about how you're driving up this road. You're going, what the heck? There can't be a golf course here. There's no way. And when you see the finished clubhouse, they're actually, and they, they've got some great members who've put so much thought into, into the procession and they're going to have a new little entrance. Um, Cause they have kind of, they're on a turn. That's kind of odd, but you're going to come down. You're going to see this. You're, you're going to be going through this crazy little Bellagio road. And then you're going to, you're going to get a pop, a little view of the bridge, the swinging bridge. It's just one of the coolest icons in the game. And it, when you're on the course, you kind of can't take your eyes off it. Um, they're going to paint it a little, it's gonna be a little more off white, but um, to fit the clubhouse, which is good. Uh, but you'll get this little thing, a uh, little pop of the course, which you didn't get before. And then you'll pull in and, and you can just see in the new design, I mean, you'll just walk right in the front door and it, you just see the view out to what's before you. And it'll, it'll be sort of cinematic. Uh, and then as the course, you get out there, you'll get to the first tee and, and just the way it goes and finishes. I mean, the only, you know, inconvenience really is getting back from the 18th green. And well, there's an elevator for that. So, uh, or a path up if, but they are a walking course. So, yeah, so the procession there, both getting to the course and then when you're on it, it, yeah, I mean you have to go through tunnels and there's some breaks, but it just flows. So but that, and that, and that's part of it. That that's the kind of the magical thing about it is that the the places where you can see the stitches in yeah. that routing are pleasurable in and of themselves. Yeah, it's going through amusing. those tunnels is cool. Yeah. Like yeah. it's a fun walk. It's not a pain yeah. in the butt. It's a feature of the golf course, and uh, and that is just something that uh, that I I think Bel Air does better than just about any other course that's built on similarly severe terrain. 
Um, and yeah. it, it really is quite an accomplishment. Maybe wouldn't have been done after the era of really common golf carts. You know, this is this is the kind of witchcraft that Golden Age architects really were were good at. No question. Um, and and obviously. George Thomas was uh, a little bit on the forward thinking side more than others. And then there was a developer who was willing to pay for, for elevators and things at a time when that was a, a big deal. Um, and, uh, and I hate to think what they did to had to do to get those canyons playable, but um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just astounding. And then, yeah, the everyday question, it would have been a definite no, uh, prior to the, the Doak work, uh, and I, I can attest cause we, we would play qualifying rounds there. We played early in the morning. A lot of times they'd send us off 10, <laughs> not a fun start. The that's, old 10th hole was a three tier a... <laughs> green. Uh, I mean, it's just a hard hole uphill, but it was a three tier green with bunkers and it was, it was, it was very hard to par at seven in the morning. But, um, it, it is now, of course, you absolutely go, oh, gosh, I could play her every day. Not just just the, the, the fun factor uh, the, of the holes, uh, the, the playability. It was so overtreed, so tight, so overcompensating for the yardage and, and just beat you up in a, a bad way. They took pride in that. And there's some members I know who don't like the restoration work because it's made it easier. I just don't, I don't know what to say to that. It just looks so fun. Everybody who was out there who came out <clears throat> just to see Bel Air and then get the chance to see these women, I, 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 I'd say four or five times, somebody I was just chatting with went, this place looks so fun to play. And you just didn't, you just didn't say that before the old course. I mean, mm -hmm. it was exciting to play maybe, but it was humbling. Mm -hmm. It wore you down and, and not in a good way. And the current superintendent, Justin DePippo, might be one of the most talented superintendents in the country. And and certainly his yeah. presentation of that course is very, very impressive. They've got some yeah. interesting things going on with the Bermuda grass there. You know, I, I don't know that I've seen a Southern California course right now that has similar turf. Um, I wonder what you thought of the turf out there. Oh my gosh. It was, it was, well, few, few players. And I heard a few officials were fooled. They didn't know it was Bermuda. They yeah. thought it, they were bent fairways. Yeah. In fact, I heard somebody ask what kind of bend is this? <laughs> yeah, it must they be some back. new incredible breed that you can grow. And by the way, I'm not yeah. mocking. If you yeah. walked up, I knew, I know it's Bermuda, but if you didn't know, it was a very legitimate question to ask. It was cut that tight. And let me tell you, LA's fairways were beautiful for the U S open. Absolutely pristine great and especially when we didn't have the greatest spring in terms of of warmth and sun and we we have gotten the warmth and sun since the u.s open that that, that certainly helped justin but the the tightness of the cut the firmness you know a lot of people were messaging me like oh, it's too green why is it so green and I go, well part of it is it was very green and then television jacks it up i think a little with some contrast as we know or or something changes with the camera and um but it didn't play soft or slow uh there were little ball marks made by tee shots not because of wetness but because of the tightness of the cut these little skid which you, another one you only see that on bermuda when it's really wet so justin is amazing he's got a great crew it was a neat moment they were out watching and um fred you could tell they were the maintenance crew because because even though they were wearing kind of the same volunteer outfit as as the members or the of the pro shop staff and uh, but they were, you know, their pants were dirty. They'd been out doing some raking and work and, 
Um, Fred Perpaugh was complimenting them and they were, they've got a really nice tight knit crew that that always helps. And, um, and then having a lot of trees out really helps, uh, that place, Bel Air always was had trouble with greens in, in the summer dying because of the canyons and air circulation and the trees and, uh, and, and then trying to transition from overseed to, to not, it just, it's, uh, so all that stuff comes together and, and you got to see that uh with it um uh, just in every every way i mean i'm not a fan of the look of the bunkers or the the little barrancas i'd love to see more sand in those and i'd just love to see a a little more sculpting and handwork and funkiness to the bunkers they're they're a little too um uh clean and and uh straightforward and kind of bland to me but uh but but it the the golf is just so much better and yeah you could play there every day and never get tired of it and the and then as Justin and his and and Penny his uh, valued assistant Penny DePuppo, no relation. Uh, uh, she uh, his dog is Golden Doodle. Uh, shows that it's a lovely place to take a dog for a walk because she just loves to frolic out there. And um, obviously the surrounding real estate, the beautiful canyons, the beautiful climate. Uh, when the breeze comes through the canyon and all that, that helps too. Uh, no question, but it does as hilly as it is, it, it has a beautiful sort of walk in the park feel to it. And, and the players really reinforce that as well. I mean, they were tired and the caddies were really tired, uh, but they got shuttle rides to make up for the lack of the elevator not working. And, but they, the players really attested to how much they were loving the course. And I think the quality of the two two uh finalists i mean early in the week you could see they were playing really well yeah um but you never know a match play if they'll make it but they were i watched both of them in the stroke play and and uh especially showfield i was not surprised that she um got to where she got yeah yeah or or latana stone you know she uh yeah she really augusta national women's amateur and has has been there in in big tournaments and yeah uh, and it's it's a heavy ball well, and she, just, I mean, just, just had the Rory thing going with just hitting lips all day on the putts yeah, and had a bad leg, bad calf, and she still was bombing it out there and fought. And it was one of those matches. I mean, it was four and two, but it very, it could have turned very easily. It, it, it the score doesn't quite, uh, really capture how close it was. Yeah. All right. So quickly at the end here, another great women's championship at a cool course. This past week, the AIG Women's Open at Walton Heath, Lilia Vu won yeah. her second major of the year. Lilia Vu is a, a UCLA uh, alum and uh, very familiar to you. Uh, I like to refer to you, Jeff, as the mayor of Westwood. I, I don't know if that uh, title is <laughs> well, official, but, tough, uh, right? well, but might be tough. But. <laughs> Did you see this coming from Lilia? A lot of people seem surprised. But what is your perspective on that? Well, yeah, look at, look what she's done since the Chevron. Uh, I mean, practically forgotten about her. Uh, and you saw her quote, am I ever going to win again? Um, which was funny in a way, but, uh, it shows you you how, how quickly you can have it and how quickly you can lose it. So she clearly, uh, I mean, I, I just, her body language yesterday and her, her aggressiveness and her confidence was I thought was kind of stunning, really, uh, to shoot those two scores with some wind. The course, 
had nice firmness and man and, and you know it was clear the crowd was not for her they weren't rude but they were definitely yeah, it's for charlie hall charlie yeah hall. that was yeah that, yeah and obvious. she picked up that energy she had to have you just could tell by the the reaction to her makes versus charlie hall they were they were they were very different and she fended that off quickly and and, and just finished so beautifully and um yeah you know it's it's a. Uh, and Angel Yin was right there, and and I, I guess I don't want to get too preachy, but there's two public golf products from Southern California. It didn't go through any programs of uh, you know a, a, a kind of introductory things. They found the game, parents, whatever. I know Angel Yin. It was parents and uh, Lilia too, and and but and drawn to it, and having public facilities close by, and. I mean, you just step back and look right now, you, you know, on the men's side, and I'm going to include San Diego in this uh, for Southern California because it is Southern California. Uh, Xander Schauffele, public golf product. Uh, up here, closer to L.A., Max Homa, Colin Morikawa, pure public golf products, not, not AJGA uh, uh, robotic uh, types. And then on the women's side, you've got Lilia and Angel Yin. You, you, have, you have several players on the women's side. And there's really something there, I think, that's important for people to understand that that uh, those facilities can produce great players and might even, you know, does it almost give her a little bit of a toughness when she gets on a, I mean, there's no Lynx golf in Southern California. <laughs> uh, no Heathland golf. And, yeah, more, uh, more, like, more like Kakuya golf. You can, yeah, you can, you can yeah, play off Kakuya. And I know the places Lilia played, and I know the places Angel Yin grew up on, and Max and and Patrick Cantlay, even though he, you know, Virginia Country Club, but he's a, another one of our products. And he's a Poa and Kakuya product. Tiger and Phil, Poa and Kakuya. No good ranges around here. I mean, I really, other than the Country Club. So these players uh, – were hardened in some way by that kind of golf. And, and I mean, Kikuya will almost make you, yeah, really love when you get to play the ball on the ground a little, cause it's such an aerial game mm -hmm. and so annoying at times when you hit a great shot and it's a yard short of the green, it comes back at you in the, in the, yeah. in the, in the summertime when the Kikuya is thriving. So I, I feel like it, it forces you to be assertive when you're chipping too. And, and maybe some people would say well, the same about Bermuda, Yes, but you know, you, you can get, you can get hung up in that stuff pretty easily if you're uncommitted to a, uh, to a stroke. Correct. Oh yeah. It can make a fool of you. And yeah. So when you get on this kind of wispy fescue, that's, that's dry and you have a chance to run it short, I think that one, it, it allows you to have some imagination that you don't get to use. And it, it also probably just hardens you. So, uh, she's, she's incredible. She's, uh, and she's such a nice person off the course, but she's one of those players you can see when she gets in contention and gets going, she is tough as nails. That was, that was, uh, that was amazing to, uh, to see. So, uh, never, I, Never, I don't think she'd been to the Heathlands, and I don't think she's. She, I know she hasn't been to the old course because she said that. Uh, but she obviously has quite the soul too. She says she's going to cry when she crosses the bridge. Uh, so she, uh, yeah, just a tremendous win, and it, it was neat for me to see because I've kind of had a thing about this with our current crop. And obviously, sometimes I forget to mention. Oh yeah, by the way, and Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Um, but these, this new group, you know, you just keep going back to, ah, they started at Meadowlark and Vista Valencia and, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I mean, the place where Colin Morikawa played uh, Chevy Chase, it's a club, but I mean, it's a, it's a semi-private uh, kind of, uh, it is not a, is not a stock uh, thing you see in Florida or Texas where they have pyramids of titles. There's some funky holes there at, <laughs> yeah. at Morikawa's home funky course. Funky is a great, there's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's think, some weird stuff. Yeah, and I think there's something to this uh, that, that is, has made these players better when they're now on these, these stages. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 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 all for the the Southern California patriotism here. I'm I'm from Santa Barbara myself, so I I completely buy into this idea that uh it has become a powerhouse and there's some good evidence right now that that you yeah. know, we have some young players coming up who have something a little bit different about them who happen to be coming out of these public facilities in Southern California and that is good to see in a time when the access to the game for great young players is becoming somewhat more difficult with the lack of caddy programs, et cetera, the cost of the game, the cost of being a great junior and getting the training you need. It is encouraging to see some of these kids really come out and make something of themselves and show that their experiences are not a disadvantage, but in fact might actually have helped them in some way. Yeah, one point. Yeah, I just would make though is is we I I, I don't want it to uh, to be an endorsement of the the state of our public golf here because it's awful, uh, both in the way a lot of these places are run, um, or and we now have we've just added three more courses to the endangered list out of nowhere came from nowhere. Thank thankfully we have the SCGA is a great organization with. Um, a guy named Craig Kessler who gets on top of these situations, whether it's advocacy or literally getting into the weeds and explaining and fighting. But we have some um, um, just very centrally located public courses suddenly in, in the San Fernando Valley that have just been put on some on a, on a uh, taken out as part of a master plan that just got posted, came out of nowhere. Uh, these all these courses do a lot of play. I mean, we're talking 300 thousand plus rounds a year between them driving ranges that are awful but still are busy so yeah i you know right now we really could use the 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 golf world and especially the usga having done studies at some of the la city courses their 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 role in kind of i know it's not normally what they do but uh there is a there uh, there is a need especially and also where lilia vu plays there's a couple courses there that uh people have been dying to turn into housing and or parks and different stuff. So it's um there is a little bit of a crisis element to it too. Yeah. Yeah, uh you know, as as much as there are some encouraging municipal projects going on around the US right now, you know, locally at a lot of the courses where I live, a lot of the courses where I grew up uh are still uh for sure under a bit of threat right now and especially given the water situation in Southern California. But uh in any case, Jeff, we should wrap up there. I've taken up enough yep. of your time. On that depressing note. On that depressing yeah. note. <laughs> Beller is a great golf course. Let's end on that note. There you um, go. It was a, it was a home <laughs> run. It was a fun, I had so much fun watching it. It really was great. And everybody who came up had a blast. And uh, I hope it came off well on TV. And look forward to seeing those two players. Well, all the players continue. But uh, uh, we, were very, we were very privileged to have them in town and, and have them uh, put out such a great show. Jeff, thank you. Thank you.
This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced and edited by Matt Ruchus. Thank you, Matt. One big thing that you can do for us right now is leave a rating and review of this podcast wherever you might be listening to it. Our understanding is that Apple Podcast reviews and ratings are especially meaningful. So if you happen to be there, then get in there and leave a rating, leave a review, give us some feedback, tell us how you think we're doing, and we would really appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again soon. Thank you.